seated. A scripture passage for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Um, if you have your Bibles, you'd like to turn to it right now here, and if not, you can follow on the screen, it's on the PowerPoint. The Gospel Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Let me begin. Luke chapter 12, beginning from verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, and this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity this morning that we could worship you as a church. We also reminded again, Lord, from your words in Isaiah 6, 9, that once you have indicted your people of Israel, saying, that they're ever hearing, but never understanding. That they're ever seeing, but never perceiving. Lord, in your mercy, we pray that this will never happen to us. And so we ask for your grace, once again, that you will humble us, humble us, Lord. And make our hearts teachable and malleable to you, so that we may be able to hear your word to us clearly this morning. And so now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. What is preaching? You know, someone has described preaching like this. He says, preaching is the fine art of talking in someone else's sleep. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if that is true, but I do know that one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher is lost attention. You know, from time to time, I do wonder whether you guys are hearing the sermons that I preach, or even Pastor Anthony or Pastor Lee, or did we lose you? Standing at the door of the church, you know, every Sunday after preaching, you know, I would hear comments like this, Pastor, thank you for your sermon. You spoke to my heart today. You know, as I stand there shaking their hands, wow, praise the Lord. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And what happened the next week? Hey, by the way, huh, by the way, where is the famous Teochew porridge huh, that you mentioned in your sermon? <laughs> Another one. Pastor, thank you. This is one of the most wonderful messages you know, I've ever heard in this church. Wow, my heart all sore, really. You know, point nine, you know, plout nine. And then, anyway, what is your secret recipe for the your style, chai tong? Uh? You know, sometimes I wonder, and you know that in preaching, part of 
preaching is to really help you to understand. And so there's a reason why we bring illustrations, you know, we put in stories. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder whether you remember the story or you remember the point of the sermon. <laughs> okay? Well, over the years, I've actually comforted myself saying to myself, and I pray to God that God, yeah, I know I should simply trust the Lord that you guys are getting the message every time I preach or every time Pastor Lee or Pastor Anthony preaches. Anyway, if for whatever reason, you know, you guys didn't get what I preached, you know, I'm also comforted. You know why? Well, the reason is simple because I remember that even our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here 2,000 years ago, he had problems, Okay. You see, there were those that were part of his congregation who were listening to him preach, but they still didn't get it, and they couldn't even remember what he was talking about. Now, one such incident is recorded for us in today's, this morning's scripture text, in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. Now, let me give you the context of this chapter. Now, we were told that Jesus was preaching to a huge multitude, and he was talking to them about life, about death, about hypocrisy and hell. And he was telling them about the love and fear of God. He was telling them, you know, if you fear God, you don't have to fear anything or anyone else. And as Jesus was moving through the middle of his message, suddenly, you know, a man elbowed his way through the crowd and and interrupted Jesus in the middle of his sermon. And he said to Jesus, teacher, divide the inheritance between me and my brother. Now, we don't know much about this man's problem. One thing for sure He wasn't listening or paying attention to Jesus preaching. Now, probably his father had just died. And now he and his brother, you know, they were squabbling and they were fighting over the estate that his father had left them. And there's probably no bitterness that is greater in this world than bitterness that arises from family dispute over inheritance. And I'm sure you would know that. Maybe some of you here right now are experiencing it. But one thing is certain, that this young man had this, and that is bitterness at the center of his life. You see, for him, the birds would never sing again. The flowers would never bloom again. The sun would never shine again as brightly until somehow he got what he thought was his fair share of his inheritance from his brother. And it was precisely this particular obsession that kept him from hearing what Jesus had to say. You see, my friends, Obsessions with material wealth and priorities will keep us from hearing what Jesus has to say. You see, there he was, this man, standing in the presence of God, the Son of Heaven. But he was not listening to Jesus because his mind was preoccupied and fixated on gold, on money, on his material possessions. And it was this point that Jesus turned to him and says, Man, who made you or who made me a judge or a divider over you? Now, what, is, what did Jesus mean by that question? Now, let me explain. Now, it's interesting that back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, Moses presented himself as the Jewish people, to the Jewish people as their leader. And they said to Moses, Who made you a judge and a divider over us? You see, in that passage of Scripture, Moses wanted to judge and divide the people, but the people refused. And here the people wanted Jesus to judge and divide, but Jesus refused. Why? Well, the reason is because 
Jesus would not be reduced to the place of a Moses, the place of, the, of a county judge. Not that Jesus had no humility or think that it was beneath him to be a county judge. Neither was Jesus saying that judging and dividing are wrong. You know, our Lord Jesus was realistic enough to know that there are bound to be disputes on the side of heaven. And disputes have to be settled. But in this particular context, our Lord Jesus was simply saying that that wasn't the purpose or the reason He came. You see, friends, the reason or the purpose why Jesus came was to bring God, God to man and man to God. He did not come to make bad men good or good men better. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to make men and women who are spiritually dead alive. And anything short of that was the mist, really the real reason of His coming. So we need to be careful. You know, obsessions with material wealth and priorities can really keep us from hearing what Jesus has to say. And it was here also that Jesus, next thing He did was that He turned to the crowd and He said to the crowd, Beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist of the things he possesses. Beware of covetousness. You know the word covetousness is almost plastered all across our 21st century today. Covetousness is one of those overstuffed religious words that has lost its cutting edge. In a materialistic world, you know, we don't take covetousness very seriously. In fact, our modern world don't even think it is a sin. But what is covetousness? Well, covetousness simply defined is this. It's craving more of what you have enough of already. Well, if you want another word for covetousness, it is the word greed. And that's why some of your translation and the New International uh, Version of it is translated as greed. And there's one thing you need to know about greed. One truth you need to know about greed. You see, the truth about greed or covetousness is this, is that it is especially hard to see it in ourselves. Did you hear that? Greed is especially hard to see it in ourselves. You know, as a pastor, you know, I, I had people coming to me from time to time who confess all kinds of sins. However, I cannot ever re- remember or even recall anyone coming to me and saying, you know, Pastor... I spend too much money on myself. Pastor, you know, I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. You know, I've never heard such confessions before. You see, covetousness or greed is really hard to see in ourselves. So the question is, why can't anyone in the grip of greed or covetousness see it? Why can't we see it? The answer, I believe, is this. And that is behind every greed or covetousness lies powerful sociological and psychological dynamics that that are at play. Now, what do I mean? Now, let me explain. You see, every one of us tend to live in a particular social economic bracket. And the truth is this. Once you can afford to live in a particular neighborhood and you can send your children to the best schools, and you can participate you know, in its social life, what you'll find is that you find yourself being surrounded by quite, quite a number of people who have more money than you. Okay? And then what happens next? Well, naturally, 
we will not compare ourselves with the world. We will compare ourselves to those that are nearest around us, and that is our neighbors, those who are living near us, those who are in our social economic bracket, those that we are socializing with. And then when you look at your neighbor or your friend, you know, your heart will always justify itself by saying, you know, I don't live as well as my neighbor or that person, you know, who, who lives down the road. You know, you see, you know, he's, he's really lavish. Me, my means are really modest compared to him or her. So you see what is happening now here? There is this subtle self-deception of self-justification that is happening. And you reason and you think, you know, no matter how lavish you are, okay, no matter how spendthrift you are, you are living, you know, you're still not as bad as your neighbor next door. Yeah? That's a kind of reasoning. And as a result of that, most people who live in such social economic bracket, you know, they would never consider themselves rich. No, 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 no. We, we, are, we are not, you know, the, the upper class. We are middle class. All of us are middle class. You know, my neighbor, yeah, he's the upper class. <laughs> but you know, friends, the world is not full. When people from third world countries come and visit our country, you know, they'll be staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of us have come to view as necessity. You know, I always like to say, a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. A luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. And that's the reason why I say greed or covetousness is especially hard to see it in ourselves, especially when we are in a particular social economic bracket. You see, my friends, if you study your Bible well, you will know that Jesus wants us far more about greed than about sex, and yet almost no one thinks that they are guilty of it. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you ever asked God, God, am I greedy? Lord, am I covetous? When was the last time you asked God in you know, that kind of prayer? You see, friends, greed hides itself from the victim, and as a result, it can blind our hearts to God as well as to others. And Jesus is saying, this is not life. You see, life does not consist of the things we possess or we amass or we acquire. And yet, if there's one message that comes to us in 10,000 seductive voices, it is a message of our society and our century that life is about acquiring things. Life is about, you know, amassing things, you know. And so you can see the daily messages that are bombarded, the greed messages in advertisements where you can read in the papers, popular magazines, billboards in our MRTs, you know, televisions, internet, you know, they will advertise all kinds, you know, to tell you, you know, if you don't have this, you know, you're, you're, you're not there. You must get this. And so what happens is this, we are like the proverbial you know, donkey that has the carrot extended before it on a stick. The carrot is always there. Promising to fill our appetites. But alas, what it promises, it does not deliver. But like the proverbial monkey, you know, we keep on donkey, we keep on going, you know, and we try to, to take the stuff, we take the carrot, we try to take it, and we think that it will satisfy us. But at last, finally when we get it, we discover we're still empty. But yet we still go on, trying to acquire that carrot and worry about things. Listen, Jesus says, beware of covetousness. Beware of craving more and more of what you have enough 
of already. And then to drive home that basic lesson, Jesus tells a story about a man who had made his money in agriculture. This rich man. Who was this rich man? We were told that he was rich, really rich. We don't even know his name. But in that community where he lived long ago, folks will feel he had succeeded. Probably, you know, he, he's the, the Bill Gates of the day or the you know, Warren Buffett of the day. Now, don't misunderstand me. Riches in and of themselves are not evil. I've said it again and again. In fact, if you look through the Bible, some of God's great men and women in the Bible are people of great wealth. Think of Abraham, King David, King Solomon, etc. In fact, the early church, if you know, if it was not for the wealthy people who opened up their homes to the bands of Christians and provided them a place to worship, we will not be where we are today. So wealth in and of itself is not evil. But here it is. Here it is well. For every verse in the Bible that tells us the benefits of wealth, there are 10 other verses that tells us the danger of wealth. You see, God knows that money has a way of blinding us to what is physical and temporal and blinding us to what is spiritual and eternal. And that is why he warns us in the Bible time and time again. If you look through the history of, of the Israelites in the Old Testament, you realize, you know, when they were nothing, they were nobody, they were depending on God, they, they trusted God. But when they had the plenty, what happens? They forget God. You see, wealth, riches, material things have a way of blinding us, and more importantly, a way of distracting us away from God. You see, it is one thing to have money, but quite another for money to have you. Because when money have you, and when it does, it will slowly kill you. You know, it's like the fly and the fly paper. You know, this part of the world, we don't struggle very much. But if you were to go to Malaysia, you would see constantly, you eat at a you know, hawker store. You know, the flies are swarming all over. And it's a very common sight. You know, where they put this sand, this uh, paper, I mean, this uh, fly paper. And the fly would just land on the paper. And then they get stuck down there. And so what happened, you know, the fly lands on the fly paper. And the fly paper says... Yeah, I don't know, the fly says, my fly paper. And then what happens? The fly paper says, my fly. <laughs> By the time it says this, the fly is dead. So it's one thing to have money, but quite another to have money to have us. Because when money have you, it will slowly kill you. Now there's something else we know about this wealthy farmer, and that is, he was extremely hardworking. He was industrious. You know, I'm sure the rich man did not make his money by selling his lands for houses or prostitution or running a casino. Now, I know very little about farming, but one thing I do know is, is if people make their money in agriculture, they do not do it out of the land. They usually do it with the sweat of their brow. Lands do not plant themselves, and harvests do not gather by themselves. And certainly, you know, if you look through the Bible, the Bible commends industry and hard work. And if you decide, you know, you're going to get Take that, take things easy. You're going to be a lazy bum. You're going to be a sluggard. Well, the Bible does not give you much consolation because the Bible also rebukes laziness. But listen, listen carefully. There is a danger in industry. What is the danger? The danger is this. You can work so hard in your life that you never ask what you're working for. That's a danger. You see, you can spend your, strife, your, your strength, your entire life on working and never take time off to ask, what is this purpose all about? 
You see, it's altogether possible to be industrious and hardworking about the wrong things in life. Continuing with our story, not only was this farmer rich and industrious, but we were told that he was also progressive. You know, when he had made his killing on the market, he decided he would invest in capital improvements. And so his problem was no longer growth, but production, but, you know, and production. But his, his problem right now was storage. How does he store all this, you know, a mass of wealth and the, you know, the, the weed and the grains that he has? He was going to pull the old barn down and then he decided he would pull the barn down and build new ones. You know, we all admire progress in our society and especially for us, right? Here, back in this brand new church, this is progress. And those of you who are, you know, three, four years ago, you were back in the old church, you know, you would say, what? That one very thorough. But then if we were then, you know, we look at Mayflower days, you know, wow, that was even more thorough. <laughs> and so... Well, we have progress as a church. So, you know, our society, you know, we, we are enamored with progress. And it will not be surprising to know also that many companies, you know, have a motto which may not be openly communicated, but that is progress is the most important product. I think it's true. Because if there's no progress in any company, you can, you know, balik kampung. You don't have to do business anymore. Because if you don't grow, how will you sustain a viable business? If you have no profit, how do you, how do you, sustain, are you if you don't progress, how, how is it viable to sustain a business? But the only trouble is that most of our progress, you know, is not made in people, but it is made in things. And that can be an illusion in itself. You see, progress is not focused on people soon will move rapidly down the wrong road. So listen carefully. The Bible commands industry but it's not progress to move rapidly down the wrong road. You know, someone said this, to be better off is not to be better. Let me say that again. To be better off is not to be better. Now, what do I mean? Well, just read the newspapers. You know, I have a few articles down there. Can you just flip up down there? You know, some of the most sensational news are about rich people who get into trouble with the law, trouble with their families, trouble with themselves. Look at that tycoon down there, the South Korean tycoon. Help over slush funds tax evasion. Ex-business director charged with corruption. The next one, the most recent one, you'll probably know. Okay, doctor's charges, $24 million. Families feud over real estate. Fighting over money. You see, these are real stuff. And so, my friends, to be better off is not to be better. Continuing with our story, here was this man in Jesus' story, rich, industrious, progressive. He had everything going on for him until one night, everything changed. I just want you to imagine with me for a moment. Just imagine that this rich man was sitting at his desk one evening and then across the desk, his desk, was his town architect. And they had sprawled out in front of them this blueprint, you know, to develop, you know, his, his farm. And the rich man says to the architect, now listen, there's a time when I had the best farm in this whole community. Then I had the best farms in the entire Jordan Valley. But now, you know what? I'm going to be a model farm that they will know throughout all of Israel. And so the two men work and plan into the night. And eventually the rich man's wife, you know, came in, knocked on the door. And she says to them, you know, it's time for you to go to bed. You know, it's 11 o'clock. And so what happened was this, the two men still, you know, he, they ignored 
the rich man's wife's, you know, uh, uh, calling. And so what happened? They continue working until the clock strikes 11. And then the, finally, the architect says, you know, you know, I've been out almost every night in this week, you know, and I've, I've got to get home. And so he, he took the plan and he left. And he rose up and, and then went out. And so the rich man saw him out. He bolted the door. But then his adrenaline, you know, is still flowing. And this rich man just can't sleep. And so he went back again to his desk to work. Take out his pen. Continue his plans. And as he was making his plan, he was startled by the knock at his door. He was about to open the door when he suddenly discovered to astonishment that the presence was already inside the room. And so the rich man asked him, who are you? And the presence says, I'm deaf. And the rich man says, deaf? What do you want? Deaf says, I come for you. The rich man says, no, 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 I mean, there must be some kind of mistake. You did not tell me that you were coming. And Dev says, oh yes, I've told you. I just don't think you were listening. I told you when I took that young man down the street a few months ago. I told you when I took your partner a year ago. I told you every time you opened the newspaper and you read the obituary column. I told you every time you saw a cemetery. Ha, huh, I've told you. But whether you heard it or not, 10, 9, 8, 7. And the rich man says, wait, 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 wait. Look, 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 we can make a bargain. You know, you can half, get half of everything I've collected. You can have half of my bonds, half of my money, half of my farm. You know, ju- just let me live. And Dev says, why do I need half of all your possessions? The rich man says, all right, all right, wait, wait, you can have it all. Now, all is yours. Take it. Let me start all over again from the beginning. You know, I'm just not ready for you. And then Dev looks at the rich man with a grin and waves his hand. And the rich man slumped to the floor. What happened the next morning was that the wife comes and finds her husband slumped across the floor. She tries to wake him up and realizes that he was dead. And a day later, all the people in the community, they came to gather, they, you know, and they had this great eulogy for this, this rich man. They told about how, you know, he was a model to the community. They talked about his success, his contribution. After all, he built the biggest farm in the community, you know, and they took him up to the cemetery, his body to the cemetery. Over his grave, they put a large stone and inscribed over the stone were the words, outstanding boss, successful businessman, entrepreneur, you know, visionary, progressive. And after that, the crowd goes home. You realize his name? Chen You Qian. Chen You Qian. <laughs> and that night, an angel of the God of the Lord walked through that cemetery, and over all that was engraved down there, that angel wrote one solitary word Fool. You see, the rich man discovered too late the obvious. He had built bonds and had been prosperous over the years, but he had not given a single thought to God. The point that Jesus made in the parable is clear. If you live to collect riches as though God does not exist, he says, you are a fool. The rich man prepared for all contingency, but he ignored life's only inevitability. And no man understand, and I'm sure in a sense, that the rich man was a religious person. Now here is the point. You may believe that God exists, but if you live as though He does not exist in your life, God says, you are a fool. Because that is simply practical atheism. 
And then Jesus concluded the story with this haunting question. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who will get what you prepared for yourself? Jesus' point is clear. You know, whatever the rich man collected over his life, all his life, it is all left behind. He cannot take a single dime with him when he died. He had lived a life of a fool. You know, in many senses, life is like a game of chess. Some of you are chess enthusiasts, I know. And if you know chess, you know, in chess, they have different powers, different abilities. But when the game is over, all those pieces are put back in a box. And that is true in, in life as well. You can play the game, play against the system. The system may beat you. You may beat the system. You may jump some and others jump on you. But the reality is this, when the game is finally over, we all go into the box. And that's the truth. And what Jesus is saying is this, when you measure what you, you give your life to, don't measure it in the flesh of your youth, the anticipation of your teens or 20s. But if you really want to measure your life, stand by the side of a grave or a coffin. You know, and then look back and ask yourself, is it worth your life to get what you are after? You amass all the things and then you leave them all behind. Is that worth living? And Jesus says this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself and is not rich toward God. So let me ask you, a question this morning. How are you doing here? Have you been rich toward God? You know, someplace in our life, we will have to decide whether God will have all of us. And Jesus drives home the point by saying in verses 22 to 23, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. In other words, Jesus is saying, we ought to be concerned about living in our life, you know, our life for the kingdom of God, not on how we will pay our bills. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, the point is this, just don't make the paying of bills the focus of your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, not saying that you, you should not be paying your bills, but he's saying don't make that the focus of your life. And then he gives two illustrations. He talks about the ravens and the lilies and all these, you know, God provided for. You know, the point is, is God is saying as he quotes these two illustrations, is God is a realist. God knows that we all have to pay our bills. God knows that we have to buy food. But he's not saying, you know, don't think about those things. But rather he's saying, don't worry. Not don't think, but don't worry about them. Don't make them the aim of your life. If you're going to worry, worry about something that is more important. And he says this, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be given to you as well. And what Jesus is saying is this, you ought to be concerned about is living your life for the kingdom of God. You see, it makes good sense to live our life for that which is eternal. And that which outlasts you. Remember. All of us at the most, you know, we can live up 70 or 80 score. And that's it. Life is brief. But you have the whole of eternity. And if you're not going to spend preparing time for eternity, you're going to regret. And you'll be the greatest fool. So Jesus is saying here, make him the center of your life. You know, a good, good example would be you know, like an example of a wheel. A wheel is very much, you know, life is like a wheel. You see, at the center of the wheel, wheel is a hub. 
And out from the hub comes the spokes. And what you put at the hub of the wheel actually determines the strength. Okay? And I know many people in our society who live for possessions. And all the spokes of their lives grow out of this desire, you know, to acquire things, to amass things. And their family life is governed by that. The church they attend also is, you know, governed by that, enabling them to get an advantage in the marketplace. Their business is devoted to doing such things. Then one day what happens is this. There's a turn in the market, an economic recession. And then what happened? Their whole possession is wiped out. And their lives crumble. And I know people who live for passion. The fire of passion that burns inside them is the center of their lives, you know, and they sacrifice almost anything and everything to it, their families, their homes, their communities, their business. And finally, when they discover that passion itself is too late because they realize that their passion is never satisfied and it has destroyed their lives and others. And I know people live for power. They live to get power all their life. Every spoke is directed to it. And when they lose the election and they fail to get the promotion, then suddenly life crumbles. And the thing to which they gave their lives mocks at them. And even worse, when they get the office they seek. You know, perhaps, as I said before, one of the worst things that can ever happen to us is to get our desire because sometimes getting our desire, you will discover that you actually don't want it after all. It may be the worst thing to happen. So Jesus is basically saying, is God the center? And for God's sake, God the center. See, what you put in the center determines the spokes of your life. To put Jesus at the center of your life is to link your life with all that which is eternal and to give yourself to that which it will never fade. And if you do that for the rest of your life, life will take care of itself. Let me just close with this illustration. You know, there was a legend that told about this man who had, been, who, who had a very stupid servant. And so the master often got exasperated with this servant. And then one day, in a fit of frustration, he said to this servant, you've got to be the most stupid man I've ever met. Look, I want you to take this staff and carry it with you wherever you go. And if you ever meet a man more stupid than you, give the staff to that person. And so the man carried the staff, you know, often out in the marketplace, and uh, to look for someone more stupid than him. And he would meet some stupid people, but you know, often he would tell himself, um, maybe they're not as worse as him. And so years passed, you know, the servant carrying the staff. And then one day, you know, he was called back to the castle because the master was sick. And so he went. And so the master summoned him. And so they had this conversation. So the master said, I'm going on a long journey. The servant said, where do you plan to be back? The master said, well, this is a journey for which I will not return. The servant said, Sir, have you made all necessary preparations? The master said, No, I've not. The servant said, Could you have made preparations? The master said, Well, I guess, yes. You know, I've, if I had to make my life all over again, you know, I've been so busy about many things. Yeah, I would have prepared better. And the servant said, Master, you're going on a long journey from which you will never return. You could have prepared for it, but you just didn't. The master said, well, I think that's about right how you summarize you know, what I'm thinking. And then the servant took the staff he carried so long and said, Master, you take this one with you. At last, I've met someone more stupid than myself. <laughs> Beware of covetousness. A man's life does not consist of the things he possesses. It consists of seeking at the center of our life 
God's kingdom, God's rule. You see, when you do all that, then all these other things, unnecessary as they are, it will be added to you. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then do it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, thank you once again for your word. I know it's a word that many of us will find it easy to listen to, but we know you spoke much more about wealth than anything else in your word. So this morning, help us not to be rich full. Help us to really make you the center of our life and not be driven by material wants and needs. So thank you once again. We pray that your grace will help us to really be rich unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.